It is another blessed opportunity we've each been given this Sunday afternoon to assemble and to gather in the name of the great God of heaven and to do so for the express purpose and wish to offer to Him that worship that's so richly deserved by Him. As always, we're thankful for the presence of each and every one, our membership, our visitors alike, and we'd like each to appreciate the opportunity that God has given each of us this very evening, certainly. As you probably have noticed in the, by way of the title of the lesson tonight, burdens drawn from the book of Isaiah. In fact, you may have noted in the reading of this past week as we have set before us that charge, that commission to read through the Bible, we found ourselves in the midst of the book of Isaiah. In particular, that set of chapters, and you probably noticed a particular word that was used in a frequent basis, the word itself, burden. And that's the reason I selected the title that I did, because that summarized about a dozen chapters or so there in the heart of the book of Isaiah. You may notice, in fact, some of these initial comments. That set of chapters, Isaiah, beginning about chapter number 13, continuing on till about chapter 25, a set of chapters that often mention was made of burdens. We'll see if we can't reflect for a few moments tonight on the nature of those statements and, of course, on the character of that text Brother Eddie read a moment ago, drawing for you and me an application so powerful even as it's quoted in places in the New Testament. It may well be as you come to the bottom set of comments. The book of Isaiah occupies a place in the Word of God that probably each of us is such that our mind races to appreciate this. 66 chapters, and hence a rather long book of prophecy. It is the first, though, of the 17 books of Old Testament prophecy. Commencing with Isaiah and continuing all the way through the book of Malachi, we remember message after message with such power and courage drawn by these prophets and sent forth to the people. In particular, you may remember that Isaiah is often called the Messianic prophet. Frequently, we find Isaiah making statements about the life of Christ, the circumstances surrounding the church, the nature, in fact, of that redemption seen in the church. It is in Isaiah chapter 2 that we have that familiar passage that is the statement that the mountain of the Lord's house would be established in the top of the mountains. That passage, in fact, that found its fulfillment on the day of Pentecost when the church was established. You'll notice several other passages I've listed to ask each of us to think about the efforts surrounding some of the prophecies in Isaiah. But tonight, our task and our particular set of chapters is again drawn from the, those beginning in chapter 13. I would ask that you turn to that set of chapters with me as we begin to make some comments or at least draw some considerations relative to it. These statements of background might be helpful to us as we make our way to those chapters themselves. First of all, the book of Isaiah begins with a rather resounding note in which the people of God were not as they should have been. In Isaiah chapter 1, in fact, that message is so clearly set before us. Verses 3 and 4 speak about an ox that knows its master and even a donkey, an ass that's aware of its master's crib. But yet God says, my people do not know. My people are not in a position to have considered. And from that point forward, we notice a rather thunderous stroke as God set before them challenges and charges of their own failures, the sinfulness that had been descriptive of their way. 
No wonder in light of those things we immediately observe that God commissioned Isaiah in chapter number 6. Here was one up to that time who had not felt that particular message or call to be the prophet. And yet God on that occasion commissioned him. He in fact touched the lips of Isaiah. And in that call it was Isaiah who responded, Lord, here am I. Send me. Verse number 8 of Isaiah chapter 6. From that point forward we find this strong and powerful warrior for the Lord who in so many ways delivered messages of sternness and strength and courage. Amazingly though, we quickly find in the chapters that follow, there's quickly a mention on the part of God through Isaiah about nations. Not just, I, not just the people of Judah and not just the people of Jerusalem but people that were even in extensive places and in other nations. So often are those mentioned in Isaiah that it seems entirely fair to bring back to mind that statement. I've simply entitled it, The Nations. There has been, at times at least, a prevailing thought that God was only concerned with the Jews, that He was only concerned in the Old Testament days with those that were the lineage of Abraham through Jacob, and he cared not the slightest for other peoples of the world. That statement's not true. It's fair to say there has never been a human being alive on this earth anywhere that was not subject to God. He is the great Creator. He is the one, in fact, who has had all people subject to Him. The Jews were subject to the law of Moses, but everyone else to the patriarchy. Thus, God did have messages for them, and He had words of wisdom and encouragement and obedience for them. Notice how often the prophets turned their attention to the nations. In Jeremiah 25, one by one, nations are described and listed in God's verdict upon them due to their failures. In Jeremiah chapters 46 to 51, one more time, the prophet in resounding fashion brought to bear the failures of the nations. As you and I come to the book of Ezekiel, in chapters 25 to 32, a resounding set of discussions relative to the nations. Maybe those thoughts are enough to remind us that in this section in which the nations are described in Isaiah, perhaps we're ready to see the first of our burdens. Chapter 13 in Isaiah begins the first of these burdens. You may notice immediately the language that's used to describe it. Isaiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. The burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see. And immediately brought before you and me is a burden, and specifically it has reference to a set of circumstances that, of course, the nation of Babylon would experience. At this point, you and I are in position to begin to appreciate the word burden. When you and I hear that word, we tend to think of that which is heavy to bear, or at least that which must be carried, that which often brings with it labor and effort and difficult circumstances. And so we find that over this chapter and the next one, Isaiah 13 and 14, is a set of descriptions about some hard times coming to Babylon. Hard times that that nation was going to experience in the days of the long ago. You may notice just a few of the quick statements. We certainly won't be exhaustive. But you'll notice in chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, a reference to the day of the Lord. 
It was going to be a day when God's judgment in a physical sense would be poured forth upon them. And that judgment I have asked you to highlight rather quickly in the following way. You may notice verse 19 of chapter number 13. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellency shall be when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. This nation was going to be overthrown as thoroughly and as completely as was the circumstances surrounding Sodom and Gomorrah. It was going to be a very overwhelming circumstances. You and I may notice immediately, God was well aware of those foolish decisions that the nation of Babylon had made. Later in the lesson tonight, we're going to learn something else about that that's all the more overwhelming but we shall save it until the right chapter in which it's presented before us. May I ask you to notice as chapter 14 begins, some more continuing descriptions of Babylon. There is a particular reference in chapter number 14 that likely has been the most noteworthy matters presented in that chapter. It's the statements found in verse number 12. Let's notice the language as it's presented to us on that position. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? That's the way the King James translation renders that verse number 12. For many, many years it has been appreciated that that was an Old Testament prophecy and a statement about that circumstance surrounding the fall of the devil. And thus many have used that word Lucifer as a reference to him. In fact, if you're familiar with the literary works in recent, over the last several hundred years, you know that John Milton in his Paradise Lost referred to the devil as Lucifer in that very literary work. Perhaps you and I can pause for a moment and ask, as we think about this passage, is this a reference in prophecy to the nature of what happened relative to the devil? Is it a description of that which perhaps other passages have often led us to appreciate? The answer must be an overwhelming no. This is no reference at all to the devil. In fact, the context informs us, especially in the verses that follow, that this was a poetic way of describing the fall of the king of Babylon. That's why other translations, in fact, rendering that Hebrew text, do not use the word Lucifer, they use the word day star. In fact, what was it that Daniel had to share with us? In the second chapter of Daniel, in that image that he saw, who represented the head of gold in that image? Was it not Babylon? Didn't God expressly say that Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold? And thus we appreciate that John Milton made an error when he attached at least the wordings of this passage to Lucifer as it related to the devil, for it wasn't so. No wonder as you come a little bit more forward in that chapter, not only is that matter to be noted, but look with me at verses 18 and 19. All the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, every one in his own house. But thou art cast out of thy grave like an abominable branch, and as the raiment of those that are slain, thrust through with a sword that go down to the stones of the pit, as a carcass trodden under feet. Those matters that were to come to Babylon, I might ask that you keep in mind Babylon was an extraordinarily powerful nation at one time in the ancient world. In fact, she reigned supreme over a large part of the ancient world. And yet, 
God, through Isaiah, declared powerfully and fully that she would not rest in that position continually, but rather she would be defeated. She would be thrust down, she would be overwhelmed, and she would bear this burden of destruction. It is with that that chapter number 14 draws to near its close. One more final thing may well be this one, verse number 28. In the year that King Ahaz died was this burden. We have at least a time frame about the nature of this declaration concerning Babylon. Hold that thought in mind as we revisit that context a bit later in the lesson this evening. Beginning in verse number 29 is another burden. You'll notice that this particular set of verses has relation to a different nation. P-A-L-E-S-T-I-N-A is again the way the King James translation reads it. If you're reading in another translation, you may well identify that that has reference to the Philistine kingdom. That that was nestled on the southwestern region thereof, that which you and I recognize as Palestine. But you'll notice to them a very strong consideration relative also to God's judgment. It's very brief. It's only a few verses. But in it, notice how verse 29 reads. Rejoice not thou, whole Palestina, because the rod of him that smote thee is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. We seem to see in that that the judgment upon this territory, although for a while there was to be a reprieve, there was to be a period of time when strong forces were against them, but those forces would be relieved. But God says, don't you take solace in that relief because there's going to be a mighty forces that will come sometime shortly later and it shall in fact be overwhelming in character. One could pause and ask about the fulfillment of all these prophecies. May we be quick to say it did come to pass exactly as Isaiah the prophet had foretold it would. That land of Palestine in the southwestern portion often portrayed due to its nearness to the sea as an overwhelming seafaring nation, one that was difficult to defeat, one difficult to overwhelm, but they were defeated. And they were beaten soundly both by Egypt as well as Babylon and Assyria themselves. Perhaps in fairness, as that one comes to a close, we're ready for the next one. As you open with me chapter 15, the first four words are these. The burden of Moab. Our mind now races to that territory of land south and east of the land of Palestine. Just nestled eastward of the Dead Sea, we find the land of Moab. They did have a heritage that linked them in one interesting way to the actual people of Israel. Remember the gentleman named Moab out of whom that group of people came. He was the son of Lot by his own daughter. That incestuous relationship described in Genesis 19 ultimately gave forth the one who founded that nation, that group of people known as the Moabites. It might well be in that, though, we come to appreciate God's words about judgment relative to them. Chapter 15 isn't terribly lengthy, but there are a number of statements about what would befall them. I would simply ask you to notice, as it continues on into chapter 16, some of the reasons are given. Verse number 6 of Isaiah 16. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud. 
even of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath, but his lies shall not be so. The people of Moab, according to what Isaiah revealed to us, were known for their prideful disposition. They thought that in that land in which they dwelt, they were secure and peaceful, and they had no thought of others overwhelming them or in any way defeating them. Remember, they were protected by the Dead Sea on the west, by the Arabian Desert on the east. There were circumstances of severe kinds of war in terms of other things that rested far to their south. They appeared to be rather secluded, in, at least in one way. However, that would be no match for God's wrath poured upon them. In these two chapters, we learn about the thoroughness of that message of God against them. Maybe this is the right time to pause and say, If God be against us, what is able to save us? Time and again in the Word of God, we find that when God's message of wrath and judgment were to come upon peoples or families or nationalities, those matters were in fact to come to pass. For God does not lie. Titus 1 verse 2 still says that the Lord cannot lie. Notice when these prophecies were declared, although it may have appeared at that time that such couldn't possibly be, but it did come to pass. You'll notice one other statement about the prideful disposition of Moab. As it appears a bit later in that same chapter, verses 9 and following, Therefore I will bewail with the, weep, with the weeping of Jazer, the vine of Sibma. I will water thee with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliela, for the shouting of thy summer fruits and of thy harvest is fallen. The gladness is taken away and joy out of the plentiful field, and in the vineyards there shall be no singing." Neither shall there be shouting. The treaders shall tread out no wine in their presses. I have made their vintage shouting to cease. A land known for its productive, fertile agricultural activities, and yet God said the days will pass when they shall be joyously celebrating the harvest. It would be gone. One by one, the burdens on these nations so far have not been terribly encouraging for they each had erred in their service to God in one way or another. As you and I look at the next one, what about against Damascus? Look a little bit further with me as we open the 17th chapter of Isaiah. The burden of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. Now as you and I contemplate the proclamations against Damascus, Keep in mind that Damascus was a city that rested to the north of the land of Palestine. It was, in fact, the capital city of Syria, that area that's typically known as Syria. In it, we begin to see one more time that God was aware of their activities. You may keep in mind that that northern kingdom of Israel was one that had Damascus at one point as a strong neighbor, and yet... We notice here she is proclaimed to be forsaken, proclaimed regarding her own destruction. As this diatribe against the nations is presented, I would ask you to notice that one of the errors presented so clearly here is this one. Notice verse 10 with me, please. Because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation, and hast not been mindful of the rock of thy strength. Therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants, and shalt set it with strange slips. In the day shalt thou make the plant to grow, and in the morning shalt thou make thy seed to flourish. 
but the harvest shall be in heap in the day of grief and of desperate sorrow. What a rather tearful description, isn't it? A land that had forgotten that God was their Savior. They had forgotten the attitude concerning what was right and proper. Doesn't that remind us that though they were a people that were not God's chosen people, nonetheless they were expected to learn and be mindful of God, and that they had forgotten. What is it that happens to any nation that forgets God? Psalm 9 verse 17 says it'll be turned into hell. Any nation that forgets God is bound on its way to destruction, bound on its way to dissolution in regard to its structure and interior organization. We notice that that was said in regard to Damascus. As you give thought to Damascus and the other things stated in this chapter, perhaps it prepares us for what comes next. You see, the nations that are listed before us here, at the time that these statements were made, in many cases these were vibrant nations, strong nations, nations that were well known to be conquerors of other kingdoms and empires. Case in point, consider Egypt. As you and I come to that description in the 19th chapter, we now notice another burden is uttered, and this one concerns Egypt. The burden of Egypt, behold, verse number 1 says, Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud and shall come into Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at His presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. Egypt was known as an idolatrous nation, and many of these others were as well. We remember in the book of Exodus the study that brought us clearer in understanding in regard to those idols. We notice here they hadn't given up that idolatrous activity and God says He's going to ride in on a swift cloud and bring destruction to the Egyptians. Verse number 2 says, And I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians. They were ultimately going to in part destroy themselves. You and I might be amazed at the thought of such a thing. But we know that more than once in the Old Testament that happened. God brought the Egyptians in such a way that ultimately they, by being confounded, by being confused, they would have a part to play in their own dissolution. We might, in fairness, however, be quick to say that any nation that turns against God has in fact laid their own warfare into their own destruction. No wonder in light of those comments concerning Egypt. Consider what some of the other prophets in brevity shared with us. We especially find it in Jeremiah. The nation of Israel often looked to Egypt as their rescuers. When the enemy nations of, say, Assyria or Babylon would come against the people of God, they would turn to Egypt and beg for help. They would turn to Egypt and ask for supplies and ask for being delivered. More than once, God told His prophets like Jeremiah, You bring statements of strong denunciation against my people, for they've turned to Egypt and not to me. That's a strong statement, isn't it? God intended His people to lean upon Him and to turn to Him for advice and for strength and for protection. No wonder then that we find this denunciation about Egypt. She wasn't as strong as God's people thought she was. No wonder that burden is stated. Notice verse number 11 of chapter 19. Surely the princes of Zoan are fools. The counsel of the wise counselors of Pharaoh has become brutish. 
How say ye unto Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings? The wisdom of those supposed wise people of Egypt, not nearly comparable to that of God. As you and I describe these burdens, perhaps this is the opportune time to observe in chapter number 21 what appears to be a rather interesting presentation. It starts with these words in verse 1. The burden of the desert of the sea. And you might immediately along with me wonder who or what is the desert of the sea that's described in this chapter. Who is feeling this statement of this burden? The context, it seems, clearly informs us. This is that passage to which I referred a moment ago. It is a secondary presentation concerning Babylon. That one we noticed back in chapter 13. In chapter 13 and 14, her description was such that she again was clearly mentioned in name. And yet here, if you look with me carefully to verse 9, you notice she's mentioned again. And thus, we have no need to wonder. As you and I think about Babylon, the terrible ways that she often persecuted God's people in the ancient era and the way in which she was such a tyrant, God's judgment would come. And I find it very interesting that this is the very passage quoted in Revelation 18. You may remember with me there that when the John the Revelator gave before you and me that description of the overwhelming defeat of ancient Rome, the one who persecuted God's very people, he borrowed the language of Isaiah 21 and described Babylon has fallen, Babylon has fallen, and quoted it there in relation to Rome. The Roman Empire did fall, didn't it? We remember that fall began much earlier, but ultimately came to fruition in about 476 A.D. And ultimately, God's people enjoyed a freedom from the tyrannical overruling power of the Romans. Babylon has fallen. Maybe it's fair to say in light of all those things, there's one other aspect of this that's so intriguing. It has to do with the time frame. When was the book of Isaiah written? You and I, by looking with care, because Isaiah does tell us what kings were reigning when he wrote, and thus we can ascertain the time frame. The book of Isaiah was written prior to Babylon rising to stature. Assyria was the empire ruling the world at the time, and yet she would give way to Babylon. And yet we find here, nonetheless, a clear statement that Babylon itself would ultimately be crushed. Over 150 years would pass before that came to be. Isn't that amazing? Things written, history written before its time. Our God, of course, wrote this book. That's the only way anything like that could happen. No human knows the future like that. And yet, as those descriptions are given to us, look also at the burden found in verses 11 and following of chapter 21. Very brief in scope. You'll notice in verse 11, the burden of Duma. And then also in verse number 13, the burden upon Arabia. We, you and I might wonder, who is Duma? What nation was that? That's another way of referring to Edom. That's the Edomites. And hence, we see that these people who, remember, descended from Esau, they too had failed in their recognition of God. I think, among other things, we're learning so well that be it individuals or be it nations, if we forget God, we have no hope. 
Wasn't it said in Jeremiah 10, 23, Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. When it be nations or whether it be individuals who try to make our own path and follow our own wisdom and knowledge and way, we're destined ultimately to fall so short and ultimately on that final day to, of course, meet the vengeance of a wrathful God. It may well be in light of that we come to Arabia. In verses 13 and following, Arabia was that rather large desert area, again, existent to the east of Moab. They too, however, was such that there were people that lived there, but they too had failed. Isn't it sad to think about failing in one service to God? And yet you and I know that we live today in the finest of the particular dispensations. The Lord Jesus Christ has come. If they failed in that day and consider what vengeance they met, how much sorer will it be for those who fail today? For our opportunities are greater. Our responsibilities are more extensive. The blessings upon us are grander. And so if God judged them when they failed, of how much sorer judgment shall it be for us? No wonder 1 Peter 4.17 still reads, If judgment first begin at the house of God, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? I think each of us know the answer to that question. May then we come to this burden. What about the valley of vision in chapter 22? Another interesting turn of words, isn't it? The valley of vision? You and I think of vision as being able to see optometric-related matters, the valley of vision. And yet, as you open the 22nd chapter with me, you begin to see one more time a statement that at times is refreshing, but more often than not, statements of God's judgment upon them. Because you'll notice this is Jerusalem. Let us ask this question. Of all the ancient peoples and of all the ancient ones, who should have had the best vision in terms of spiritual matters. Shouldn't it have been Jerusalem? There's where David ruled. There's where Solomon ruled. There's where the centerpiece was of the southern kingdom. There's where the location was in which there ought to have been a nearness to God. And yet, she was the one that lacked vision. She was the one who so often erred by turning to the left or to the right. God was well aware of her mistakes, and we notice here that the valley of vision was the very thing subject to the judgment of God. Perhaps you'll notice in light of that, we come to chapter 23, the nation known as Tyre, T-Y-R-E. As we mention the descriptions of these burdens, Tyre would be a rather lengthy set of lessons in its own right. Historically, much could be said about Tyre because so many of the prophets made reference to it. There was a lengthy three-chapter exposition in Ezekiel about Tyre, wasn't there? Ezekiel chapters 26 and following. As you and I notice the brevity, however, of what time we have tonight, may I just ask you to notice something very interesting is said concerning Tyre. I would only ask that you notice verses 17 and 18 of Isaiah chapter 23. And it shall come to pass after the end of 70 years that the Lord will visit Tyre, and she shall turn to her hire, and shall commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world upon the face of the earth. And her merchandise and her hire shall be holiness to the Lord. It shall not be treasured nor laid up. 
for her merchandise shall be for them that dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently and for durable clothing. You and I so often think about God's plan and His restoration of the ancient people of Israel. He promised them that after 70 years they would return from captivity. They'd return to Jerusalem and in fact the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah details those events. But did you notice here, God foretold Tyre would return. There'd be a restoration even of Tyre. But He notices, didn't He, that she would be destroyed following her return. Her return, you see, wasn't with the blessedness of Israel's return. Isn't it great to be a servant of God? And isn't it sweet to hear His promise directed to those that are His faithful servants? One by one, as you've looked with me at all of these, we've looked then at ten nations that were subjects of these descriptions. And the burdens were very strong. The burdens most often were destruction. As we take those lessons and use them, perhaps it brings us ever so sweetly to the statement I would ask you to notice at the top. As you and I have looked time and again at these burdens, we so often find God's message is a message that's tempered. And I say that like this. It is so often true in the Word of God that we find statements, sometimes even chapters, that bring forth God's judgment upon those that are disobedient. But then... Almost with the turning of a page, we find statements of blessing and statements of promise, statements of encouragement. I'm sure tonight, as you notice the reading of Isaiah 25, those kind of thoughts came before you. I'd like to ask you to notice again as we read those together, for it sounds nothing like these chapters you and I have just observed. O Lord, Thou art my God. I will exalt Thee. I will praise Thy name. For thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. That's the opening verse of Isaiah 25. In the midst of these chapters that make description of God's judgment upon those who have neglected His way, there is now a pronouncement of praise. O Lord, Thou art my God, I will exalt Thee. Who is the I? You and I hear Isaiah making this statement. Though others might be unfaithful, though other nations <coughs> excuse me, were directed improperly, though other nations had made choices that were so foolish, Isaiah said, I will not. May you and I have a sternness to that kind of dedication. Although others may make those choices that are not wise, and although others might make those decisions that seem so improper, May you and I have determination that will not be set aside. A determination that truly is faithful in every way. A dedication highlighted not only in this passage, but so many others as well. I will praise thee. I will exalt thee, verse number 1. And then he notice he gives reasons as to why he feels this way. For thou hast done wonderful things. Isaiah, you see, could no doubt remember a time when the people of Israel had known prosperity. For in the, some of the kings, like Hezekiah, that had been their lot. Do you and I remember days of sweetness and blessing? Perhaps you and I are enjoying that right now in life. And if so, even in the times that are so sweet and good, may we never ever forget who the real source of those blessings are. For you see, it is the God of heaven that provides it. 
He goes on to say in verse 1, Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. Isaiah could recollect and reminisce in former days and times when faithfulness to the Lord was something better known and truth was what was so highlighted. Our God is a God of truth. And when the human family errs from truth, they shall meet these burdens that have been portrayed in chapters like these. But even if that happens, may you and I rest in that faithfulness and truth of God. On to verse number 2. For thou hast made of a city an heap, of a defensed city a ruin, a place, of, sorry, a palace of strangers to be no city. It shall never be built. We find before us Isaiah making observation that there were times when destruction had come upon some nations and some cities. As a judgment from God, notice he was even in a position to praise God for his truth even in ways like that. Verse 3, Therefore shall the strong people glorify thee. No person is strong if he is not a servant to God. No person, no matter what other things may be true of his life, he is not strong if he does not serve the God of heaven. Are you and I known for our strength? Are we known for our courage and dedication in ways like that? You'll notice some of those comments challenge us in that regard, do they not? Verse number 4, For thou hast been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress. Can you recollect times in your life when, in fact, it seems as if you were at a low point and yet the God of heaven was there to see you through? You did emerge victorious. You did emerge in a stronger and better position than you once had known. I'm sure if we're rather honest and recollectant with ourselves, we probably can remember times when our faith perhaps wasn't as strong as we would wish it to have been. But then circumstances started turning in our direction. The circumstances of God in answer to our pleas and prayers were such that things did move in a better way for us. That was not accident. It was not happenstantial. It was the God of heaven moving, directing matters and things in a way to bring about that which was His will toward your direction and mine. We find time and again the Bible informs us of those kind of events. You might remember the book of Philemon in the New Testament. Here a slave ran away from his master, but after having run away, who did he contact? He came to meet Paul. Now, might we ask, was that accident? Paul ultimately converted that man to the gospel. He went back to his master, but he went back not as a slave only, but as a Christian slave. And as Paul spoke to Philemon, encouraging him to accept him back, not just as a servant, but as a brother beloved in the Lord, Philippians verses 15 and follow, or rather Philemon verses 15 and following, you and I notice that event happened by discretion under the greatness of the overwhelming providence of God. No wonder as you and I come to those bottom slides, the bottom statements, God's recollection for the poor and the needy. Maybe as we come near the close of our thoughts tonight, it does allow us to approach verse number 5 of Isaiah 25. Thou shalt bring down the noise of strangers as the heat in a dry place, even the heat with the shadow of a cloud, the branch of the terrible one shall be brought low. 
the disposition of humility, a lack of arrogance and pridefulness. We noticed that was the error of Moab back in chapter 19. That was the error of many of those nations in the ancient era. And of course, that's the error of many an individual in our world today. And maybe you and I can be fraught with that kind of mistake from time to time. As you and I contemplate all of that, I've always felt it terribly interesting that it is this chapter that's quoted at a very strategic place in the New Testament. I'm sure once we read it, you'll immediately recognize where it is. Right after this, in verse number 8, it says, He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God shall wipe away tears from, all, from off all faces, and the rebuke of His people shall He take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. Isaiah 25, verse number 8. When you and I think about where that's found in the New Testament, and we think about the promise that associates to it there, we'll use that to close our lesson this evening. Notice again, He will swallow up death in victory. Paul quoted that verbatim in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 and following. In that marvelous description of that final day of resurrection, when all the dead shall rise, he made observation that death will be swallowed up in victory. You and I know that for the promise of those that are faithful, and it'll be a recognized point when death will give way to incorruption. We will put on incorruption that day, this body that shall never again be destroyed in any way, and we shall be able to enter into the joys, of course, of our Lord. The text that Paul quoted was Isaiah 25, verse number 8. And notice again how that's found on that occasion. In the midst of the destruction for those that were not ready and unfaithful, we find Isaiah's faithfulness and the sweet message of victory. Doesn't that speak volumes about the day of judgment? It'll be a sweet day of victory for those that are ready and faithful and those whose sins have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and those who live in a matter respective of honoring the God of heaven. But for those that are unprepared and those that are unready, those like the nations who were prideful and arrogant and disobedient and unfaithful, there shall be no hope for them. No wonder we appreciate death indeed swallowed up in victory. What about you? Are you prepared to, of course, appreciate the victory of that day? You know that if not, defeat is the only other option. There are only two possibilities. There's victory on the one hand. For those, of course, it'll be judged on the right. But to those on the left, those that are reckoned with the goats, Matthew 25, verses 31 and following, describe it as a day of eternal punishment, a day when that will be the sentence. As we close this lesson tonight, I thought the words needed to be brief. The burdens of Isaiah was our title. We saw one by one the nations standing in judgment before God, and they met that judgment in the ancient era. But there's coming a grander day of judgment still, and every person who's ever lived will be there that day. Every individual. We're told that in Matthew 25, 32. And everyone shall give account of himself to God, Romans 14, 12. Everyone shall receive the deeds done in his body, Revelation 22, 12. As you and I stand ready to make the reception that day, will it be victory? Will it be ultimate defeat? The Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross and shed his blood that one and all could be saved. He paid the price. 
Have you, in fact, been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Have you come to the Master and to the Savior and been so thankfully receptive of the salvation He offers? Or have you remained at a distance, disobedient, and as though you've not heard that which He had to say? If tonight you find yourself in need of making a public statement of, in, of, of needfulness, we'd be happy to assist you and help you. The plan of salvation reads that you need to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Acts 8.37. You must repent of your sins in the wording you see of Acts 2 verse 38. You must confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God, Romans 10 verses 10 to 12. And of course, you must be baptized for the remission of your sins. If we could help you do that tonight, why delay? If you've done that but haven't been faithful, why not come back to your first love, Revelation 2.5? And if we could be of help to you, we'd be delighted to do it. Let us know, if you would, the way we could help, even while we stand and while we sing.